Hello and welcome to We're Watching What. I'm your host, Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and it is a holiday weekend in the US, which means a smorgasbord of things to watch and hopefully a tiny bit of extra time to watch them in. So things up for review this week are Happiest Season, We Are the Champions, The Crude's A New Age, Uncle Frank, Super Intelligence, and Hillbilly Elegy. And without further ado, here's We're Watching What. Get ready for a holiday-sized smorgasbord of viewing options and like all feasts, there are going to be things that are delicious, there are going to be things that are meh, and there are going to be things that give you indigestion. So let's start with some of the more enjoyable fare, and that's starting with Happiest Season, which is streaming on Hulu. And the premise is that a woman learns that her girlfriend hasn't come out to her conservative parents and goes home for the holidays, and this is basically being described as the gay holiday movie, and it's not wrong. It is truly enjoyable. It's written and directed by Clea Duvall, who in my mind I will always know from The Faculty, which is a pretty terrible movie, but she was in Girl Interrupted, she was in Zodiac, she's mostly known as an actress. However, she has been making her foray into directing and writing for a little bit of time now. It stars Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis as the main couple, and then Mackenzie Davis's family is played by Victor Garber and Mary Steenburgen, and Alison Brie, Anna Gasteyer is in it, Mary Holland plays another one of Mackenzie Davis's sisters, she was also a co-writer on the film and Dan Levy from Schitt's Creek, who I love so much. I think I pretty much just watched this movie for Dan Levy. The rest of it was nice to have and I do like Mackenzie Davis a lot. And honestly, this is probably my favorite Kristen Stewart performance. I think she was trying something different. She does this thing that she relies on in, I would say, almost every film, and a little bit in real life, actually, where she runs her hands through her hair as, as sort of any sort of acting tick, and that's to show emotion, it, be it happy, sad, etc., confusion, whatever. And she did not rely on that in this film, and I was so happy to see that because I was like, oh, you are branching out a little bit. I This was an unexpected role for her, and is she the greatest actor? No, not really really, but it was still enjoyable. And I think I hold this to probably a slightly similar standard that I hold the Netflix holiday films on the Lifetime and the Hallmark, you know, that, that sort of quickly made holiday film. But this one definitely had a budget. It was a fully formed film. I think it was actually originally intended to come out in theaters, but I think Hulu is like the perfect place for it. It is a little bit frustrating in that it is one of those films that could be solved with one conversation. However, that conversation is a very important one and it is the coming out conversation. And there's actually a speech in the film from Dan Levy, who I feel like is the coming out fairy godfather to us all because he just is able to deliver the importance of the coming out journey, be it in Schitt's Creek or be it in Happiest Season in a way that is so empathetic and sympathetic. I feel like it's just so inspiring and it speaks beyond the screen, right? It feels like he's always directly addressing the audience in not in a bad way but it's it's his ability to speak to that topic which I feel like is probably a very important topic to him is really a compelling thing to see on screen that was the best moment in the film and so the fact that the whole conversation that needs to be had to solve the film is that conversation like yes I understand why this is a this is not an easy solve like in a Netflix film like The Holiday the easy conversation that would have solved the whole film is if they both admit they had feelings for each other in this one yeah it's a little more complicated it is a little bit sad in 2020 to see a uh, a film that still revolves around people who have not been able to come out of the closet yet, but I also understand that not everyone, let's say, lives in like California like I do, or you know, New York like I used to. I, I get that, but it's I hope that this is no longer able to be a plot device someday 
That being said, because it is still relevant to the present day, I thought the way it handled it was fun. It's light. It's, oh, um, Aubrey Plaza is also in the film. And this is probably also one of the most likable performances out of her. Not that she's not likable in other things, but she intentionally tries to play these sort of standoffish characters. In fact, there's a film called Black Bear coming out soon that I'll talk about that completely revolves around Aubrey Plaza being a unreadable. And in this one, she plays the ex of Mackenzie Davis, who's around for the holidays as well. And I, I thought it was a really enjoyable performances out of everyone. Again, I would hold it to that holiday standard and not necessarily like, this is trying to be an Oscar contender, which are the other films that come out around this year. But I'm going to give Happiest Season 3.8 out of 5. And then next up, also another easy, fun, fast watch is We Are the Champions. It's a series that came out on Netflix, I want to say a week and a half ago and you don't have to watch any of them in order, which is great. They're all standalone episodes and they are about niche competitive things. So the first episode starts with this cheese rolling contest in the UK where these people barrel down a hill. It's like a 45 degree angle and chase after a wheel of cheese and they get hurt and it is ridiculous and you'd think no sane human would do this and the episode is just great. And then the second episode is like chili eating and I almost threw up watching it because they all almost throw up and just like, why would these people put themselves through it? They're short, they're fun. I almost wish some of them had been a little bit longer because I'm like, what is, like the chili eating one, in spite of the fact that it was making me slightly ill, I was like, I wanna know more about everything that's happening here. (laughs) Like, who are these people? Why have they done this? It's things like yo-yo competitions and dog dancing and there's a hairstyling one and frog it's just there's only six episodes in this series but I wouldn't be surprised if they put out another series of it Uh, Rain Wilson is the narrator I think he was also a producer on it it's just very interesting to watch you don't have to pay a ton of attention to it if you want to put it on the background that's fine you also might find yourself sitting down and just intently watching all of it so that's We Are the Champions on Netflix I'm not going to rate it per se but it is just a heads up that it's out there and it is worth checking out and then next up is The Crude's A New Age, which unfortunately is only out in actual theaters, which is kind of a bummer because I was not expecting a lot from this film, but I actually kind of enjoyed it. I had, again, zero expectations going in. I did remember seeing the first one in 2013. I don't think I remember anything from it, except for the fact that Nick Cage is the main voice of this family of cave people. And again, I saw it in 2013 because I, one, I generally tend to see every major animated film release because I have a lot of friends who work on them. And two, I was like, Nick Cage in an animated film. All right, sign me up. Things I had forgotten. Ryan Reynolds was a voice in it. Emma Stone was also a voice in it. Catherine Keener, Cloris Leachman, and Clark Duke, all voices in it. All pretty strong actors who I'm a fan of. So the first one is the idea that uh, the crews are this family unit. Emma Stone is a teenage daughter and uh, Ryan Reynolds' character shows up out of nowhere and is, you know, kind of another cave person. And it's about uh, Nick Cage doesn't want him to take his little girl away. We get it. Sort of relatable. I don't remember much of the humor for the first one. The second one really gets a little absurd and I kind of enjoyed it. I don't remember if the first one was this fun, but the second one, at least for the first half of it, just goes all in on a lot of family jokes. And maybe it's also because I'm older now and I get more of the jokes. But the idea behind Crude's A New Age is you've got this sort of nomadic hunter-gatherer cave people family. And then they stumble upon another family of humans who are the Bettermans, played by Leslie Mann, Peter Dinklage, and Kelly Marie Tran. So I was very happy to see Kelly Marie Tran or hear Kelly Marie Tran in this. 
And it turns out the Bettermans have ties to Ryan Reynolds' character from before he joined the Croods. And it's it's basically about parents interfering and them incorrectly imposing their wills onto the next gen- their next generation, the children, right? So uh, Nick Cage doesn't want Ryan Reynolds around. Meanwhile, the Bettermans do want him around because they want him to keep their daughter, Kellen Ray Tran's character, company. And so it, there are some pretty actually funny jokes in it. There's a lot of just weird animation that I, I love when films get sort of surreal and bizarre like that. There are a lot of jokes about technology, even though they are all essentially cave people. The Bettermans have figured out basic agriculture, which I think is sort of the landmark sign of, okay, you're starting to evolve as a species. But overall, I found myself laughing quite a bit in the first third. And then the film gets a little sidetracked and it does a bunch of action stuff. And I feel like a lot of times I watch these movies and I go, okay, I'm not necessarily the intended audience, but I always like when I, as a, an adult, but currently childless person, can get something out of the film. And I think the first third really actually is aimed at slightly, I don't mean old, but old, not kids in terms of the humor, but there's also sort of that zany physical comedy that I would say one comes to expect out of a lot of films of this sort. And then the film starts to dip, I would want to say about 40 minutes, and I will give it credit. They introduced a secondary plot that had been sort of building from the beginning that I was like, okay, you know what? It's a stretch, but it actually, in terms of the kind of, hey, we need to introduce zany action, etc., cetera, uh, methods, it worked within the world and the constraints they'd set up, and there are some funny jokes that come out of it. I think the second half is a little more what I probably would have expected from the film in terms of a lot of physical comedy humor, It probably aimed at a slightly younger age range. That being said, there were still things I laughed at, there were still things I enjoyed. Again, overall, had no expectations for this one, so was pleasantly surprised. Now, should you go out and see it in a theater? Please, God, no. Please stay home. Please stay safe. Please, please wear a mask. You know, all those things. Do not go to a theater, even if they are open near you. However, once this comes out on demand, etc., you know, if you were a fan of the first one, which good for you, because I, again, I don't remember the first one very well. Uh, I think this is worth watching. If you are the parent of young kids, I think this will be one of the better films that you will be sort of essentially forced to watch because you are so desperate for new content. Uh, if you are kind of in between and really just don't care about any of this stuff, I don't think necessarily this is worth that sort of time. But if you were already interested and or if you are a parent, I think of the options that we have been presented, especially this year in terms of films like this, this is one of the better ones or the better men. So I'm going to give it 3.7 out of 5. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Next up is Uncle Frank, which came out on Amazon Prime. And the idea is accompanied by his teenage niece, a gay literature professor reluctantly returns home to attend his father's funeral. It stars Paul Bettany and Paul Bettany's crazy mustache, which you will see if you watch the film. Sophia Lillis, Peter McDesey, Steve Zahn, Judy Greer, Stephen Root, Lois Smith, and character actress Margot Martindale. And it's written and directed by Alan Ball, who I will always associate with Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under, I think, is a show that I was, one, watching way too young that dealt completely with death, and two, it probably has the best finale of a TV show I've ever seen. I have not gone back and watched it since because I just remember crying so hard through it. It might not be a perfect ending, but in my mind, from the moment in time of when I watched it, I just remember it being a truly moving, great great way to wrap up a show. So I tend to give Alan Ball a lot of leeway. Again, much like Happiest Season, this is one of those films where I'm like, I look forward to the day that this type of story feels super antiquated. And this one is set not in modern day per se, you know, so it's like, okay, fine, we're 
coming out is a historical issue and at the time so basically Peter McDesey plays Paul Bettany's partner Sophia Lillis plays his niece so he is her uncle Frank and she goes to NYU which uh, is where Paul Bettany appears to be a professor and discovers that he's out and then you know we have this whole returning home to they come from a very southern family and sort of and having to reckon with the fact that um Peter McDesey's character tags along because he wants to support Paul Bettany's character and, and family drama ensues. While I know that the film is really trying to be about Paul Bettany as Frank, Peter McDesey's character was my favorite part of it. I think he was super watchable. I think he was super fun. Um, Sophia Lillis also does a very good job as this sort of neutral party in the family where she's just non-judgmental. I think she's also a little bit naive, which she plays pretty well. But Paul Bettany's chewing the scenery just a little bit. Just just a little bit here. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of all of them. Also, Steve Zahn. What an underrated actor sometimes. In my brain, Steve Zahn is still a sort of a zany comedy actor, but really I feel like almost everything I've seen him in in the last few years has been a strong, sometimes even subtle performance, and I feel bad that I still have this preconceived notion about him, but in this he had a couple really great moments. Overall, it's fine. It's like simultaneously like most Alan Ball things, I feel like it's a bummer, but it's also a little bit uplifting, but I feel like that's pretty tough anything that's inherently a bummer to watch in this year. And I personally don't want to go through the kind of emotional torture stuff that I maybe in a normal healthier year would feel fine watching. If you are in a stronger emotional place and this sounds appealing to you, it's it's an okay movie. Again, the good thing about it is if you already have Amazon Prime, it's not going to cost you anything extra. And so in that sense, I'm like, great, no problem. It, it has uh, elevated my willingness to recommend the film. If this was coming out in theaters, I don't know if I'd be as comfortable, again, in this moment in time, in this year, recommending the film. And I also think there is going to be a certain generation of people who connect more to the film than um, I would say I would. And I think much like a film like Boys in the Band, which was much worse than this, by the way, but I think much like a film like Boys in the Band, this is aimed at a certain generation, I would say, of particularly uh, gay men who did grow up in a time where it's really, it was really, really tough to come out. And so uh, this is one of those ones where I think you would know pretty quickly off the bat whether or not this would be an appealing movie to you. And normally I would say, hey, if you watch a trailer, trailers can be very misleading, but this is one where I'm like, Yes, watch the trailer, and if you are like, yeah, I'm down with that, then you are correct. You are down with that. And if you're like, no, I feel a little bit sad about this, and I don't think it's it's not good enough for me to overcome that feeling, uh, your instincts are correct there as well. And if you're like, no, this just really doesn't appeal to me, this isn't going to be the one where I try to convince you otherwise, because I think that it needs to be a really great story if I'm going to be like, no, you really, you really need to try and understand this, and I don't think this is quite that level. So I'm going to give Uncle Frank 3.4 out of 5. And now we're getting to the possibly indigestion-inducing section of reviews for this week. I watched Super Intelligence on HBO Max, and it stars Melissa McCarthy, and it's directed by her husband, Ben Falcone. And look, I act I really like Melissa McCarthy, but she is absolutely falling into that trap of playing the exact same character over and over and over again. And I think the problem is even when she tries to break out of that stereotype that she has essentially set herself up for with a film like, let's say, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which she was nominated for an Academy Award for, by the way, I still start to see her as this type of character, which is, again, that sort of awkward, comedic. There's a lot of physical humor in that she's, there's a scene in the early on where she tries to sit on a beanbag chair and it's like, she can't sit on it. And one, I, I acknowledge that like anybody could be in that role, but there's just something about the way that she goes about it that I'm like, I've seen this performance out of you a dozen times before and I've seen it better 
out of you. And the premise of superintelligence is thin to start. It's the idea is a super powerful AI chooses to study the most average person on earth who's the Melissa McCarthy character and the fate of the world hangs in the balance and this AI is deciding whether it should like enslave or destroy or save humanity. And that by studying this one person, that's the way to do it. And the motivations behind it don't make any sense. And uh, there, you know, you've got Melissa McCarthy, you've got Bobby Cannavale. The AI is voiced by James Corden. And there are a lot of James Corden jokes in this. And I don't like James Corden. So that did not help me at all in this. Brian Tyree Henry is in it. Gene Smart. I'm just like, maybe on paper, this film was a lot better than it actually ended up being. But when the motivations make no sense, when the film also tries to sort of be a romantic comedy because it, the AI wants Melissa McCarthy and Bobby Cannavale to get back together, they were a couple. There's just all these scenes, there's like a, a makeover montage scene. There's all these jokes about technology that really just don't end up being that funny. It's trying so hard and nothing ends up landing. And the other really bizarre choice in this film to me is like Brian Tyree Henry plays Melissa McCarthy's best friend. And they have him doing the same sort of comedy that Melissa McCarthy's doing that, that awkward social situation, you know, like maybe goes in for a handshake, can't get one, tries to high five people that, that sort of, hey, I'm uncomfortable with other people around, but I'm also just going to keep trying and trying and trying thing and I'm like why do you have two characters doing this you should have them be complementary to each other not just the exact same character played by a different person and serving a slightly different purpose in the film I think the only nice thing I have to say about the film is that Melissa McCarthy looks great in it she looks fantastic in it and I do appreciate that the jokes were not about her body and that was the only other thing that was redeeming about it in that uh, a lot of the times the humor is about her being like a slightly larger person or you know probably just average size because the camera adds perspective in a weird way but but you know she's not like a real thin comedy person but this wasn't about that and they absolutely could have gone down that path which is I feel like something that they've done in other films about her uh, I think that the, like Spy, for example, I think has a lot of jokes about her looks. Again, I want to see Melissa McCarthy branch out more. This was not this was not helpful in that department. I even if you have HBO already, please skip this one for your own sake. For Melissa McCarthy's sake, skip this one because she she's capable of better and I expect more from her. I'm only gonna give it 1.9 out of 5. And then the last film I have this week is called Hillbilly Elegy and wow did I hate this film. It stars Amy Adams and Glenn Close and is directed by Ron Howard and it is out on Netflix and it is essentially the memoir of a man called J.D. Vance. And this is not a, sto a compelling enough story to be rewarded with a feature-length film. J.D. Vance is basically a man who comes from redneck roots or hillbilly roots or whatever the appropriate term is. And Amy Adams plays his mother, Glenn Close plays his grandmother, and Amy Adams has substance abuse problems, and Glenn Close is a not modern, politically correct uh, figure in both of their lives. But aside from that, there's nothing exceptional about anybody in this film. Yes, okay, fine. J.D. Vance served in the Marines and then went to college and then got into Yale Law School. Congratulations. There are people who come from much more challenging circumstances who have done the same and they were not rewarded with a book deal and then a movie deal. Just because they didn't put pen to paper and actually like talk about this doesn't mean we shouldn't 
seek out those stories to tell instead of this very average story. And the actor who they got to play J.D. Vance, I don't know if this is just because the character himself is so boring and terrible, but Gabriel Basso, who I've not really seen in a lot of stuff before, I believe he was in Super 8 and he was in the TV show The Big C, can't act if his life depended on it. He's just so monotone and there are moments where he's supposed to be angry or sad or, you know, whatever it is. And it's just all within such a limited range. And I'm like, if you're going to make a movie that centers around this character, you know, and meanwhile, you've got Amy Adams just going for it. And I really like Amy Adams, but this is, this is just not a good film. And the, the, I kept waiting for, yes, it's challenging dealing with people with addiction and you want to see your family succeed. And I get that this character is frustrated by that. But the whole time I kept thinking like, get over it, which is a terrible thing to say, but the, they did not set up any of the situation in a way that made me feel sympathetic or empathetic. And then also Frida Pinto plays his girlfriend, Usha, who's also at Yale. And I'm just like, am I supposed to feel, I don't, I don't get what I'm supposed to feel for this family. And it tells a story in a bunch of flashbacks and memories and I don't think that was the way to go with this one because, I, you know, we'll just snap back to the past and then they'll try and use the next scene to explain why, you know, whoever it is is the way they are, right? Like you have a, a fight happening in present day and then you snap back to the past and it's like, oh, okay. So we're supposed to excuse that behavior because let's say like Amy Adams is acting out because Glenn Close uh, hit her or something like that. Like that's not an excuse. That's not try to backwards make excuses for the behavior of these characters or justify the behavior it does not end up being an effective storytelling technique in this case. And like, I'm sorry, we're in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement. We're in the middle of all of this political unrest. And are you really telling me that, you know, the, the group that needs representation most in and corrected representation most in television and movies is the hillbilly like contingent from Appalachia? Like that's not who we need to be seeing stories from right now. This doesn't contribute anything to greater society. And also then just reading about J.D. Vance, I'm like, um, and, and this again has to do with my own personal politics, but he's definitely a Republican, identifies as a social conservative. His wife was a clerk for Justice John Roberts and then clerked for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who is, a, a, oh my God, I just... I think this film is very tone deaf in who it's trying to make us as a culture feel sort of sympathy or empathy for. I think this film is poorly acted by Gabriel Basso. I think it's actually probably pretty poorly acted by Amy Adams because I know she's capable of better. Uh, Glenn Close is fine in it, whatever. But don't see this movie. That's it. Just don't see this movie. It's boring. Even my personal politics aside, it's not, there are plenty of stories that I think I've seen that uh, center around groups that I don't feel a connection to or I don't even think necessarily are the right people to be focusing on right now that I'm still capable of enjoying. This is not an enjoyable film. So skip this one. I'm going to give it one out of five. So hopefully that equipped you with just a little bit more information to make some informed viewing decisions this holiday weekend. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy the episode, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.